do that part. Okay, um, so the first thing, there actually is another handout coming around, which I'm going to keep one copy of, um, which is worth looking at, um, partly to get a sense, it's hard to get a sense of, obviously it's hard to get a sense of what Homer is like in English um, as opposed to in Greek. Um, how many people have the Lattimore translation? A couple of you emailed me about other possible translations. Or how many people don't have the Lattimore or are using other translations? What are you using? Uh, Fagels. Fagels, okay. And what are you using? Lombardo. Lombardo. Um, all right, so it, you guys especially, um, if you notice when we look at a passage significant differences, um, say something about it. Um, Lattimore is extremely literal. Um, and that the literalness of his translation has what literal translations, the advantages and disadvantages that literal translations always have. The disadvantage of a literal translation is that um, it doesn't really sound like, um, it doesn't sound to English speakers the way the Greek did to Greek speakers. Um, that is, you don't have a kind of isomorphism in the experience. Um, people hearing this in Greek um, thought of Homer as being much more rapid, conversational, and above all, unstilted. Um, than, and Lattimore in English seems a little bit stilted. Um, the advantage of that is that what you're getting is a very accurate, um, thank you, very accurate translation of the Greek, as well as a constant reminder of the foreignness of what you're reading. That is, you don't fall into um, a sort of sense that this is what it really sounded like. Fagels, who's a good translator, um, translates into a more colloquial English, and sometimes his colloquial, colloquiality, colloquisms, um, sometimes his colloquisms um, are misleading. Um, you kind of think, okay, this, you know, it's like when, when um, uh, you do foreigners in an espionage movie by having them speak with British accents, and that shows that they're Russians and not Americans. Um, mm -hmm. That's a little bit like what Fagel's is like. Um, Lombroso is, um, is also fairly literal, um, and so I think he's the other really good contemporary translator. Um, the stiltedness of Lattimore, though, will give you a little bit of a sense, maybe, of what it would be like to read Homer in Greek when Greek isn't your first language. There's an interesting way um, that you're actually getting the experience of, um, of figuring Homer out in Greek, but much faster because he did it for you. Um, but also the foreignness of the language and the foreignness of the experience of reading the Iliad is a little bit the point. The Iliad is about foreignness. It's about foreigners, um, people who are um, enemies but whose enmity is um, about what, in a very famous moment, um, those of you who took the film class may remember this, um, uh, Zimmel, um, George Zimmel, the sociologist, talks about the stranger. And the category of the stranger, although Zimmel is talking about as a modern figure, the category of the stranger is something that goes back to Homer.
Um, what do we owe strangers? What is our relationship to strangers? Um, as you'll see in the Odyssey, the Odyssey, at least the first half of the Odyssey or more, um, is about Odysseus as a stranger wherever he goes and the way he's received as a stranger. Um, the laws of hospitality, as they are called. Um, you may remember the laws of hospitality from um, Exodus, which require certain duties um, to the stranger. And we are reminded in Exodus that um, the children of Israel were also strangers once. Um, the duties to strangers are the duties to those who are not like you. Um, and yet, somehow, you have to find some way um, to imagine a point of view which is not your own. And so reading Homer um, in a translation especially which always reminds you that Homer is coming from a different language, um, that's a good reminder to have because that's a theme in Homer. Um, Homer himself is writing in Greek, um, but a lot of the dialogue is um, between people who didn't speak Greek. Um, but spoke Anatolian, or some version of old Anatolian, that is the Trojans. Um, so one thing that Homer is amazing at, this is very, very surprising in an epic, is giving you the points of view of both major sides, both the Greek, that is, he doesn't use the word Greek, by the way. Um, it's Danaean or Achaean or Argive. Um, there wasn't an established um, entity or polity called Greece at the time. There was when this was written down, but there wasn't, eh, there even wasn't when this was written down, but there certainly wasn't when Homer was composing it. But we could say more or less that the Danaeans or Achaeans correspond to what later will be called um, ancient Greece. Um, and there in the um, Aegean Sea, they hold islands in the Aegean Sea, and they hold part of the mainland of what's now ancient Greece. Troy is in what's now, what's now modern Greece. Troy is in what's now modern Turkey. Um, and the language spoken there was not Greek. And in fact, um, part of the trouble that the Trojans have is that their allies don't speak the same languages as each other. Um, so there's internal division. This is something that comes up several times um, in the course of the description of the Trojan orders of battle, is that you have different groups of allies who speak different languages in the Trojan coalition. So the, that very foreignness of language um, is a foreignness that is part of the story that's being told in the Iliad. It's not a major part of the story. It doesn't come out as a major element. It's, there isn't a Tower of Babel moment where everything falls apart because people are misunderstanding each other. Um, but it's something that Homer is thinking of, putting himself and putting us into the point of view um, of a different culture, a different society from our own. So if we have the experience of finding the Iliad, in a lot of ways, a strange and foreign poem. And if the translation contributes to that experience, um, that's an experience that actually, in a strange and odd way, even as it gets you a little farther away from the poem, gets you a little closer to the poem also, um, simultaneously. Um, the way you're distanced is a way that also gives you insight into the poem. And that's something that I think the literal translations are really good about. You want to say something? You sure? 
Yeah. Okay. Um, nevertheless, what I wanted to show you was the handout that I just gave you. It's the end of book one of Paradise Lost. Um, so look first at the end of book one of um, the Iliad. If you have the Lattimore, this is page 74. Um, and um, I'll just say in a, I said this on Tuesday, but I'll repeat it now. Paradise Lost is the only thing we're in this class we're reading in the original language. Um, and what that means in a way is that um, linguistically it may um, be the hardest thing um, just because you have to get used to Milton's style. Um, so even though it's your own language, um, it's Milton writing it rather than Lattimore writing it or, um, or Robert Hollander writing it um, or Fagel's writing it. We're doing the Fagel's Aeneid, by the way, is the one that's um, in the bookstore. Um, and Milton is, after Shakespeare, the greatest English poet. Um, but that means that Milton can be hard. One of the things that I'll be wanting to do is just alert you to moments during the course of the semester um, that kind of give you milestones in Milton. And then when we get to Paradise Lost, um, it won't be something unfamiliar to you. That's why we started, um, one of the reasons we started by looking at the beginning of book three on Tuesday. So here's, um, I want us now just to look very briefly at a passage at the end of book one of Paradise Lost, but first, the end of book one of the Iliad. So what's happening here is that um, Hera and Hephaestus are talking um, because Hera and Zeus are at odds with each other because Thetis has come to Zeus to ask um, him to help Achilles in his struggle with Agamemnon. Um, and we're going to want to talk about internal divisions um, in, in a little while. But you all remember, um, a lot happens in the first six books. It doesn't feel like a lot is happening. But then it turns out that a lot has happened. Um, but so you all remember that context. Um, Achilleos is, and we'll try to use the Lattimore um, translations and names, uh, modern Achilles, but Achilleos. Um, is angry because he has been forced to give up Briseis to, um, to um, compensate Agamemnon for the fact that he was forced to give up Chryseis back to her father, who's a priest of Apollo. Um, and now Achilles is angry. He thinks this is unfair. Um, this question of fairness and unfairness is something that we'll talk about. Um, and um, he complains to his mother, Thetis, the goddess of the sea. Um, and she um, talks to Zeus about it. And Hera, who's on the side of Agamemnon and of the Achaeans in general, is unhappy about this. And she talks to her son, Hephaestus, who goes to her, start at line 571. Hephaestus, the renowned smith, rose up to speak among them to bring comfort to his beloved mother, Hera of the White Arms. And what Hephaestus says is, this will be a disastrous matter and not endurable if you two are to quarrel thus for the sake of mortals and bring brawling among the gods. 
So there's a danger that the gods might fight with each other. There will be no pleasure in the stately feast at all, since vile things will be uppermost. And I entreat my mother, though she herself understands it, to be ingratiating toward our father Zeus, that no longer our father may scold her and break up the quiet of our feasting. For if the Olympian who handles the lightning should be minded to hurl us out of our places, he is far too strong for any. So hang on to that idea that the Olympian, if he were to hurl any of the gods out of their places, they couldn't, they couldn't protect themselves from him. Do you, therefore, approach him again with words made gentle, and at once the Olympian will be gracious again to us? He spoke, and bringing to his feet, put a two-handled goblet into his mother's hands, and spoke again to her once more. Have patience, my mother, and endure it, though you be saddened, for fear that, dear as you are, I see you before my own eyes struck down. And then, sorry though I be, I shall not be able to do anything. It is too hard to fight against the Olympian. And then he tells a little backstory, and a lot of um, the Iliad um, refers to backstories, some of which Homer expects you to know, some of which he doesn't expect you to know, some of which we do know, and some of which we don't. That is, there's some backstory that Homer expects us to know that we just don't um, because it's been lost. Um, but here he refers a little to a little bit of backstory. There was a time once before now I was minded to help you. <coughs> and he caught me by the foot and threw me from the magic threshold, and all day long I dropped helpless, and about sunset I landed in Lemnos, and there was not much life left in me. After that fall, it was the Sintian men who took care of me. So there in four lines is a description of how Hephaestus became lame. Everyone knows that he's the lame god, um, he, is, he is in Roman um, land. He is often called Vulcan. Um, the Greek Hephaestus is the Roman Vulcan. Who is he married to? Aphrodite. Aphrodite, yeah. And um, the big myth, as you'll see in Ovid, the big story about um, Aphrodite, Hephaestus, and Ares, um, Mars in Roman mythology, the god of war, is that um, Aphrodite and Ares, or Vulcan and Mars, um, were having an affair, and uh, excuse me, um, uh, Venus and Mars were having an affair, and Hephaestus or Vulcan caught them and trapped them with a net um, and humiliated them, and is extremely angry at Ares. So part of that division you can already see that Ares is kind of on the Trojan side. Um, why? Because so is Aphrodite. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Not 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 Ares, but Ares. Yeah. yeah. Um, A R E S. Mars in um, is more familiar. If you say women are from Venus, men are from Mars. It's um, women are from Aphrodite. They're not planets for the Greeks. Yeah, Ilona. Yes. Um, that's not pressed at all in Homer, but that's the Ovidian version of him, that there are um, reasons that Venus is, um, or Aphrodite is interested in Ares or Mars rather than Vulcan or Hephaestus. Um, my son pointed out, if you guys watch Friday Night Lights, um, the first 
season of Friday Night Lights is actually a little bit based on this story. Um, although the Hephaestus character, that is Jason. Do you guys watch it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Really? You don't watch it? The best show on TV? <laughs> it, it, it may be. Um, I think this is one of those shows only professors watch, except it has high ratings. Do people know what it's about? No. It's about high school football in Odessa, Texas on Friday nights. And it's actually amazingly well written. It's like, like all good TV series, is, it's a soap opera. Um, but uh -oh. it's a really great soap opera. Um, Friday Night Lights. Okay, well, if you want to understand the dynamics of the Iliad, you should watch Friday Night Lights. But do your reading first. Um, <laughs> all right, so I, I won't go there. Um, at any rate, probably the story here had to do with seeing a comet or something. That is, remember that a lot of these stories are just so stories, how things got to be the way they are. So probably at some point in um, history ancient even to Homer, um, a comet or unusual um, light was seen in the skies. As you know, what happens with comets is they appear for a few months and they disappear. They don't go swooping across the sky the way they do in science fiction. Um, but you see them a new light in the night sky and then they disappear. So probably there was a comet or some relationship between a comet and a volcano or even a comet and a meteor. Um, possibly it was actually just a meteor. Um, but the idea that it would last all day long, that it would last for a really long time, makes it unlikely that it's a meteorite. But there's probably some natural phenomenon that happened in the past that this myth is describing. Um, and the myth then turns into how Hephaestus got lame. Um, it doesn't matter, I mean, it matters out of interest. It doesn't matter for the literature. Um, but now look at the end of um, book one of Paradise Lost. Um, and um, what's happened, the context here, is that um, the fallen angels who are now in hell, what happens in Paradise Lost is they take up arms against the Almighty, against God, which turns out to have been a mistake. Um, and he throws them out of heaven, and they find themselves in hell. And remember, we talked about how in the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost, Milton is so glad to be back out of the darkness visible of hell and to have returned to the precincts of light. So here we are um, in hell in book one of Paradise Lost. And in hell, the fallen angels start gathering themselves together and um, attempting and figuring out what to do next as defeated but not demolished figures in an epic battle, one that Paradise Lost will um, tell about a little bit later. Um, and the first thing they do after they regroup is they build a palace for themselves called, and you, um, this is a name Milton invented, but it's now become part of the English language, called Pandemonium. That's the name of their palace. Pandemonium means the place of all the demons. Pan as in, um, um, uh, I don't know, as in what? Pansexual. Yes, pan as in pansexual. Um, that is interested in all kinds of sexuality. Pan just means, means all in Greek. Um, the most famous, so if you're a pantheist, it means you think God is in everything. Um, the shortest sentence in Greek philosophy 
um, is Heraclitus's great sentence, um, panta rei, which means everything flows. Um, Two-word sentence in Greek philosophy, panta rei, all flows. Everything is always moving. Nothing stays the same. Um, so pandemonium is of, it literally means the place of all the demons. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, the boulevard being pandemonium um, at noon, you may be speaking more correctly than you know. <laughs> at least that's what the faculty often claim. Um, not. We don't really. Um, so, um, and who would build this great palace in hell? Who but Hephaestus? Um, and he has, as I said, his standard name, um, or the standard um, uh, translation of his name into Roman mythology is Vulcan. But as you already know from reading the Iliad, um, everyone has more than one name, or lots of characters have more than one name. It can be confusing. I'll just mention that there is um, a list of everything at the end of this. I don't know if anyone noticed it. But um, starting on page uh, 497, Lattimore gives you a helpful list, basically telling you the first appearance of every character. It's not um, so you can figure out who's who if you're confused. Um, there's a reason that people have um, several names. Part of it is that um, all mythologies um, in the ancient Mediterranean are, by the time Homer is writing, are what's called syncretic. That is, they're different stories that get mashed together and ascribed to the same gods. So there's an Egyptian god, Ammon, who is connected to the Greek god Zeus, who's connected to the Etruscan god Jupiter. And the standard understanding that the Romans had, because they were the ones who synthesized all this, are that the Etruscan god Jupiter and the Greek god Zeus and the Egyptian god Ammon are, this, are three names for the same figure. Um, originally, they weren't. In the same way in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh and Elohim are not the same figure. Um, they're two different stories that had enough similarities that they were mashed together. But that's why we always hear about the Lord our God. Um, they're two different stories of a monotheistic deity um, who are brought together into a single story by a later tradition. But he has two names or two designations at least in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah? That's the first time I've heard about that word tonight or anymore. <laughs> Um, the Anchor Bible, um, look at the Anchor Bible volume of Genesis, which has extremely good and helpful notes. Um, basically, what the first four books of, I'll just say this very quickly, the first four books of the Pentateuch, of the, Tor of the Torah, um, from uh, Genesis to um, Numbers, are the work of three major hands. Um, there's the person called the J-Writer, in English called the J-Writer, who tells stories about the Lord, is the way it's usually translated, about um, the Tetragrammaton, um, Yahweh. There's the E-Writer, who tells stories about Elohim, um, E for Elohim, and that's usually translated as God. And then there's a priestly writer who's called P, 
um, who came um, probably about 100 years after E and kind of put them together. Um, and then it's actually thought that the whole thing was put together. Um, well, yeah, so, so the Priestley writer um, kind of puts the, whole, puts the whole thing together. Yeah? There's actually a Nova special on iTunes that's about this. That really? Watched, yeah. Whoa. It's about, like, the writing of the Oscar's Five Books and the series of those five, series of five for people. And he takes you the whole thing. Uh, oh, that's neat. Okay, can you maybe just, um, I think the course is, is, I think you can write to the course on Latte. Could you just send a link? Yep. That'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, but the it, yeah it be, that's under P, and by the time David is king of England, there is a Hebrew tradition, and these different um, everyone believes in the traditions, and they think that they are about the same deity. Originally, way before that, three or four or five hundred years earlier, there were different small groups who had different local gods, and they come together. Um, in, and that's so. There's no question that very early on, um, they're regarded by the people who worship them as the same figure. But if you look, for example, at the beginning of Genesis, we weren't really not going to go this way. But it's it's worth knowing because you can see in a less fraught way um, because it's because no one here I don't think believes in the Greek gods and the Roman gods. Um, so you can see in a less fraught way um, how this works. Um, in anthropologically and mythologically, if you look at Egyptian and Greek and Roman gods. Um, but if you know the beginning of Genesis, this is also worth knowing for Paradise Lost. Does anyone know who Lilith is? Is this a name familiar to people? OK, so where Lilith comes from is an explanation of an inconsistency at the beginning of Genesis. And the inconsistency is that in the first chapter of Genesis, the chapters, by the way, <laughs> we'll divigate and divigate. Um, neither the chapters of the Bible nor the books of the Iliad and the Odyssey are original um, divisions in the work. Bible chapters are actually pages in a standard medieval manuscript. Each chapter is exactly one page long, and the page divisions are now preserved as chapter divisions. Um, biblical chapters are, there's no significance to the end of a chapter in the Bible. It's only like on your Kindle telling you what your location is within the text. There's no significance to the verse numbers either. They were put into the Bible in the 16th century. People did not refer to verses of the Bible until the 1500s. Um, so when you see in a football game, if you're watching, I don't know, Friday Night Lights and someone holds up John 3.16, um, John would have had no idea what John 3.16 was. Um, but it means it's the third page of a medieval manuscript of the Bible, of the book of John, the third page of the book of John. And um, it was only in the 15th century that people started basically assigning a number to every single sentence in the Bible. Um, the same with Homer. Um, there are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, 
Um, anyone want to recite them? I thought not. There are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, and so it was convenient when Homer was written down to just give a different letter to, to divide the um, work into portions that could be named by each letter of the alphabet. So when we're, we're actually looking at book alpha rather than book one, um, the last book is book omega. The divisions, however, of these 24 books of the Iliad and of the Odyssey are um, done by the scribes at a place where it seems natural to have a break, but the breaks could have been elsewhere. Um, so all of these divisions in books in both the Bible and in Homer are done by later editors. Yeah? But the Torah has divisions and it's like one big scroll. Yeah. So how does that work? The Torah, if you, uh, if you look at the scroll, it's not numbered. Okay. It's, um, the books are divided in the Torah, for sure. There's no question about that. But um, it's not, it's only in print, I believe it's only in codices that you find, that is printed book versions, that you'll find divisions into chapters and verses. And those are actually Christian divisions that you're looking at. If someone says, you know, if someone refers you to Genesis um, 2 colon 4, um, even if you're looking at it in Hebrew, if you're looking at Rashi's commentary on 2-4, 2-4 is actually a Christian designation. Um, in fact, a Protestant designation. Um, it's Rashi didn't talk about two about Genesis two four. Yeah. Aren't there? Can we trace it farther back to Rome? The divisions during the Roman period. The, I think the, perhaps the Jews worked with the Romans to divide it so that the Jews can have a set portion, a weekly portion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those portions aren't. They they will overlap chapters. So so the portions they came before the. You're saying that the medieval divisions came after chapter divisions came after. Yeah. Portions. Yeah, there were portions for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was divided into portions way early, no question about it. Um, but it became, there, basically there was a more and more sophisticated indexing system um, that started in medieval times, in medieval monasteries, um, and became extremely sophisticated in the, 15, in the 16th century. Was that before or after James? Before. before. Yeah. Um, it was, I believe... Now, I don't want to say for sure. It might have been the Geneva Bible, um, but I'm not positive about that. Um, but the guy who, who, who numbered the verses was from Geneva. Um, all right. In what we now call chapter 1 of Genesis, um, we are told that God took some um, clay from the ground or some earth from the ground and um, he shaped it into the shape of a man, and he breathed life into it. Um, and it says, um, um, in his own image, remember we talked about the human face divine on Tuesday, in his own image created he him, and then the next sentence is, male and female created he them. So the first account, which is the account of God's creation of Adam and Eve, that is God, not the Lord, but God, um, is that he created not Adam and Eve, but a man and a woman simultaneously um, and created them of both sexes, male and female. A little bit later, we hear that Adam complains to the Lord that he's lonely. And so the Lord makes a sleep fall upon him and takes a rib out and fashions it into a woman and Adam um, then wakes up, and there is Eve, and then he, um, and that 
actually turns out to be a story about the origin of marriage. That is, Adam says, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and join his wife, um, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Yeah. Where's that whole idea of the list being like the first? Time? So the Midrash says this is puzzling because the whole point about extremely careful reading of the Bible is to try to reconcile what seem to be um, um, contradictions. So there's a puzzle here. And the answer to the puzzle is that there's an oral Torah that wasn't written down, but is kind of Homeric. And what we discover from the tradition is, yes, Adam, he, that, that God did create um, male and female simultaneously, and that first female was named Lilith. And um, because she was created simultaneously with the first male, she believed herself to be his equal, which is, of course, ridiculous. Um, you understand that this is not my view. One has to say this, um, which is, of course, ridiculous. And um, Adam complained, and God said, you're right. I'm going to have to make you a woman who's going to listen to you and do what you say. Um, and don't you listen to her. She has to listen to you. Um, and so Lilith was sent off um, basically to become the bride of Satan. Um, and then Adam, uh, then Adam was put to sleep and given a second wife, that is Eve. Um, so there's nothing in Genesis that says this, but there's a contradiction in Genesis which requires some kind of explanation. And this is the backstory explanation that is then given in ancillary traditions. So basically, you have a contradiction between two stories, similar stories, but they don't quite match up. And then there's a third story, which is not even part of the Bible, which resolves that contradiction. Um, the same question is true of what happens to Isaac after the binding. Um, that's a huge problem for the interpreters, because he seems to disappear for a while. I'll give you another version, and then we'll get back to Homer. Um, one other version is a very, very famous and important thing, is that um, Jacob, um, with um, his wives and his men servants and his maidservants and um, all his cattle and so on, um, is going to meet Esau after 14 years of separation. And he takes his family and he crosses the Jordan with them. Um, and that's the end of the J story section of what Jacob does. Um, he crosses the Jordan with his, with his family, um, and he knows that Esau is coming on the other side. And then there's a kind of stutter in Genesis, which is it repeats that Jacob sent his family across the Jordan, but it doesn't say that he sent it. And Jacob remains on his side of the Jordan, and then a man comes and wrestles with him all night long. Um, a story known as the story of Jacob and the angel, but Genesis doesn't say it's an angel. Genesis says it's a man. Um, and then Jacob, uh, then the man says to Jacob, it's dawn, let me go. And Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And um, actually, this is how Jacob gets lame also. The man has touched Jacob on his hip. Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And the man says, okay. From now on, your name is Israel because you have strived with God and have won. Um, Israel means he who strives with God. And then the story continues, and Jacob crossed the Jordan. 
Um, so there's been this little intervention of Jacob wrestling with a man who says, the person you wrestled with is God, and he blesses Jacob. And then Jacob, not Israel, but Jacob crosses the Jordan, and he doesn't get to be called Israel for a while longer. Um, but that, it's, what's happened is people with enormous respect for the truth of the stories they've heard are willing to put in things that are inconsistent, saying we don't know why they're inconsistent, but we're not going to clean it up either because we might be falsifying what the, tr what the truth is. So they put in something that's inconsistent, and they leave it to the interpreters to figure out what's going on there. The same is true in the Christian tradition of the Gospels. If you read the so-called synoptic Gospels, the Gospels by witnesses of Jesus, people who knew Jesus, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they contradict each other. Um, and that contradiction, it's, it's a tribute to the seriousness and devotion of the people who took down what they took to be gospel truth, that the contradictions, they did not try to smooth them out. They didn't try to say, this is what really happened. Let's figure out whether Mark is right or Luke is right. Let's go with the Mark version. It's more interesting. They knew there were contradictions. And they didn't know why, but it wasn't their job to know why. It was their job to be accurate to what they had. And we, whether secular or believers, can tell, can give reasons for those contradictions. So if you're a believer, you will say, because the first woman was Lilith. And if you're not a believer, you'll say, because the story about how men and women were created simultaneously is a story written by the E writer. Whereas the story of how Eve was made out of Adam's rib is written by the J writer. What they have in common is that the E writer and the J writer both treat God as having a human face, which is something that the Egyptians did not do and the Assyrians did not do. It is, however, something the Greeks did. Um, the Greeks and the Hebrews have in common the idea that God that God or the gods are human-faced, um, which is an interesting and new idea. It's very familiar to us, but it's a new idea in mythology. You were going to say something. When I was curious on what men was something that you said, well, it's at that point that, that Jacob realizes and we realize um, that he's wrestling with someone supernatural. So the, the, the dynamic of the story is he gets into a fight with someone. It's very peculiar and strange. Um, it might be a dream um, because what he's worried about is the fight that he's looking at the next day with Esau. Um, it might be a dream, but he gets into a fight with someone and he doesn't know what's going on. And then this person simply with a touch suddenly lames him. And then he realizes, wait, this is no ordinary guy. And then he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Because the fact that you could injure me like that, it's like the stories again in the Iliad when someone says, wait, that's a god that I'm fighting. I didn't realize. Oops. Um, <laughs> unless it's Diomedes who says, god or not, you're in trouble. Um, but it's the moment, it's a recognition moment. And the recognition occurs through a wounding. Um, so the idea that recognition and wounding go together 
Um, that's a pretty interesting fact. Um, recognition is going to be hugely important in the Iliad, as some of you probably already know, and the Odyssey. Um, moments of recognition are among the most intense climaxes in both books. But the moment of the idea that recognition and wounding go together, what else is the story of Oedipus about? Recognition and wounding. Um, recognition is something that can be very fearful. For Jacob, it's um, almost the other way around, which is, um, who is this person who's wrestling with me all night? <gasps> he wounded me with this magical power. I'm so happy to be wounded, because now I can demand a blessing. I didn't know who I was wrestling with. Now I do. Um, and then the guy says, yes, I'm God. Um, it's only about a 1,000 years later that he's identified as an angel, by the way, and not as God. Um, but Genesis does not call him an angel. It calls him God. Um, one last quick question, yeah, Julian. Just gonna, in response to that, I think there is a reference to, to, uh, to that touch having knocked out his sciatic nerve. Yeah. That, that was that touch that yeah, okay, so if you want, if so part of what's going on here is that you can say this is a story about where sciatica comes from. Um, and it's unpleasant, but it turns out God is touching you, so you should be happy about it. Um, you know, there's a, if um, you probably know the um, psalm that begins, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, that's a story about stroke. That's a description of where stroke comes from. Um, that is, you can't speak and you lose um, the use of your right arm. Um, so it's a left brain um, cerebral accident. Um, so you can look, you know, if you look with a medical eye, you can see that, this, that what's being described here are very puzzling and scary things that happen. And that's one thing that myths do is they, get, they tell you why and how these puzzling and scary things happen. Okay, Paradise Lost. Um, now what's happened, Mulciber has built Pandemonium, which means what? Place of all demons, good. And all the other demons enter into Pandemonium. Um, and um, they, as Milton puts it, admiring entered. I didn't give you the subject of that. but And they all admiring entered. And some, and the work some praise, that is, they look at pandemonium and they praise the work, the architecture, and some the architect. So some of the devils entering pandemonium praise the work and some the architect. His hand was known in heaven by many a towered structure high, where sceptered angels held their residence. So before he fell, the architect fell from heaven, he built the palaces and buildings and precincts and purlieus of heaven. His hand was known in heaven by many a towered structure high, where sceptered angels held their residence, and sat as princes whom the supreme king exalted to such power and gave to rule each in his hierarchy, the orders bright. Nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece. And in Ausonian land, Ausonian land is Italy, um, and in Ausonian land, men called him Mulciber. 
So he was known in ancient Greece and in Italy he was called Mulciber as well as Vulcan. In an Ausonian land men called him Mulciber. And how he fell from heaven they fabled. So they told a fable about how he fell from heaven. Thrown by angry Jove sheer o'er the crystal battlements. From morn to noon he fell. From noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, and with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. So that is a direct translation of Homer. There was a time once before I was minded to help you, and he caught me by the foot and threw me from the magic threshold, and all day long I dropped helpless, and about sunset I landed in Lemnos, and there was not much life left in me. So if you want to know what this sounds like, um, by the greatest, the greatest epic poet in a language, then Milton will give you a sense of what Homer sounded like to the Greeks. Sheer or from um, in Ausonian land, men called him Mulciber, and how he fell from heaven, they fabled. That is, they told a fable, a, a fabulous, not a true story. How he fell from heaven, they fabled. Thrown by angry Jove, sheer are the crystal battlements. From morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day. And with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. Thus they relate, and then a famous enjambment. Does everyone know what an enjambment is? An enjambment is where a line ends, but it matters that you see what happens in the next line. And one thing that Milton is amazingly good at, it literally means a walking over. And usually we talk about enjambments as lines that don't have punctuation at the end of them. They step over to the next line. Um, in this case, though, you think that you've come to the end of the thought. Thus they relate. But there's a comma, not a period there. Thus they relate erring. In other words, Homer's story is wrong. Thus they relate erring. Their story is wrong. For he, with his rebellious rout, fell long before. So what Milton is here telling you, just so you know, I mainly wanted you to see the um, Milton's translation of that moment. But what he's telling you is the Greek gods and the Roman gods and the Egyptian gods, because he's going to give you a catalog not of ships but of gods in the next book, um, all those gods are actually the fallen angels of his story. The story that Homer tells is a false version of the true story that Milton is telling. Homer thought that the Greek gods were the real gods. What Milton is saying is he, he heard the true story, but he heard a distorted version of it. And so he tells an erroneous version about Zeus throwing Hephaestus, Jove throwing Mulciber out of heaven. Um, and it's kind of true, but it's not true. What really happened was that God threw this rebel angel out of heaven. Um, so I did, I just wanted to start with that for a few minutes before we went on to other things in class. Um, but that's, that's um, an important thing to notice. Okay, um, there are a couple of things to start with there um, that are typical of epic. 
Um, typical partly because Homer invented them and then everyone who wanted to write an epic after Homer um, used some things that became the signature of epic. One of them, as you know, is the catalog of ships. And um, the reason for the catalog of ships um, is something that's really worth thinking about. Homer introduces it. It's actually worth looking. We, don't worry, we won't go through the catalog. But it's worth looking at the introduction to the catalog. Um, and it's also worth looking at um, what happens just before it. So if you go to book two um, around line... 402, this is page 86 of the Lattimore. I should tell you, by the way, um, that Lattimore, I'm not sure whether this is true of, I think it's not true of Fagel's, it may be true of Lambrosa, but you guys will tell me. Um, Lattimore is following the Greek lineation perfectly. That is, if it's in a line in Lattimore, that is in this case, book two, line 402, it's the same line in Greek. Um, Lattimore is, that's one way that Lattimore is being very literal. Um, other translations, Fitzgerald's translation, which I don't like at all, um, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, the line numbers don't correspond. Fitzgerald's um, actually much longer than Homer. Um, but Lattimore, the line numbers correspond um, exactly. So um, if you were ever minded to refer to book two, line 402, you don't have to say, if you just say, you know, as Homer has pointed out in the catalog of ships beginning in book two, line 600 or whatever, um, you don't have to say in Lattimore's translation. Um, anyone will be able to find it in the Greek if you refer to it that way. So Agamemnon, the lord of men, dedicated a fat ox five years old to Zeus, all-powerful son of Kronos, and summoned the nobles and the great men of all the Achaeans, Nestor, before all others. So here, what we're going to get is a very quick catalog of the major people in the Iliad on the Greek side, um, except for Achilles. Um, so Homer knows that the 10 pages, or let's say the 40 minutes or so of chanting that's about to follow, that no one is going to be following that. But he wants you before then to know who the stars are. You know, in movies, this would be the part, what the catalog of ships, those are the credits that you guys walk out on. Um, but before that, they're the stars. So there's Nestor, the great men of all the Achaeans. Nestor before all others. And next, the Lord Idomeneus. Next, the two Aeontes. What are their names? Aeontes is plural of what? Anyone know? Are you saying or not saying? Ah, yes. Um, the, the standard um, uh, Latinization or, or modernization of that is Ajax. Um, so A-I-A-S we would call um, in modern English or in Latin is Ajax, but in Greek it's I-S, A-I-A-S, and the plural of that is Iontes. So there's, um, there are two characters named um, Aeos, and so they're both there. So there's the Lord Idomeneus next to two Aeontes, and Tydeus' son, Diomedes, and sixth, Odysseus, a man like Zeus himself for counsel. Then of his own accord came Menelaus of the great war cry, who knew well in his own mind the cares of his brother. Who's his brother? Agamemnon. Agamemnon. So Menelaus and Agamemnon are brothers. 
Um, and it is because Menelaus's wife, Helen, has been kidnapped by Paris, who's Hector's brother, one of many brothers of Hector, um, that the war has begun. So these are the major Greek leaders, and Homer wants to highlight them before he gets to the catalog, and you, these, are the, these are the names to know. Um, if there were a quiz, for example, um, you don't have to memorize the catalog of ships. I mean, if you want to, lots of extra credit available. Um, but you don't have to memorize the catalog of ships. But know these figures and know also what he's underlining, which is who's missing. Achilles, Achilles, who is angry and um, not part of this council. But Nestor, Idomeneus, the two Aeontes, Tydeus' son, Diomedes, and he's frequently called Tydeus' son. Odysseus, a man like Zeus himself for counsel. Menelaus and Agamemnon. Those are the major Greek figures. Then um, they have their sacrifice, and then they go back to war. Um, they, um, Agamemnon tries this trick of seeing who's a coward, but they get stirred up and they go back to war. Now go to line 450. Five um, or a little bit before um, 4:45, and they, the God-supported kings about Agamemnon, ran marshalling the men, and among them gray-eyed Athena, holding the dear treasured Aegis. Anyone know what an Aegis is? It's like a soft or wow, I Yeah, it's actually a shield that you would hide behind. So it's, it's a kind of, yeah. Also, I you know, was wondering, like, scion comes up in this lot, like scion of Ares. Yeah. And I have no idea what that means. Anyone know what a scion is? Son? Um, it's, it's actually um, uh, branching off from the line of Ares. So a scion is actually, um, the, it's an image from, from um, tree husbandry. And it's, um, or from plant husbandry, a scion of a plant is when you take not a seed for the plant, but you take a limb and plant that, and that grows also. That's called a scion. So it's, it's something that branches off and has, and has its own line. Um, so essentially it means descendant, but the idea is not that there's a single direct descendant, but that there's a branching out, and this is one of the branches. Um, so... Um, Holding the dear treasured Aegis, ageless, immortal, from whose edges float a hundred old golden tassels, each one carefully woven and each worth a hundred oxen. With his fluttering, she swept through the hosts of the Achaeans, urging them to go forward. She kindled the strength in each man's heart to take the battle without respite and keep on fighting. And now battle became sweeter to them than to go back in their hollow ships to the beloved land of their fathers. As obliterating fire lights up a vast forest along the crests of a mountain and the flare shows far off so as they marched from magnificent bronze the gleam went dazzling all about through the upper air to the heaven. So there you get um, another signature thing that Homer is better at than anyone although Virgil and Milton are no slouches, something which is called an epic simile. And the simile is a description of 
Um, well, you all know what a simile is, right? Um, it's a description that generally uses the um, word like. Um, they looked like um, a swarm of ants in an anthill, so busy they were. Um, Homer similes are among his glories. And so here you have the Achaeans marching, and their bronze is gleaming in the air, and it's like fire, like a forest fire along the crests of a mountain that you can see far off. Um, not quite the first simile, but the first major simile comes 10 pages earlier. This is, um, hang on to where we are here on page um, 88. But if you go back to page 78, um, there's um, this, a simile of, again, how many um, Achaeans there are. So this is book two, line 84, let's start. Um, so he spoke and led the way, departing from the council, and the rest rose to their feet, the sceptered kings, and obeying the shepherd of the people, and the army thronged behind them, like the swarms of clustering bees that issue forever in fresh bursts from the hollow in the stone, and hang like bunched grapes as they hover beneath the flowers in springtime, fluttering in swarms together this way and that way, so the many nations of men from the ships and the shelters along the front of the deep sea beach marched in order by companies to the assembly, and rumor walked blazing among them. So they're swarming like bees, but don't be too quick to interpret the simile as to say, oh, they're swarming like bees. Ask yourself, but why is he talking about the flowers? Why is he talking about um, how they hang like bunched grapes? Notice that the first major simile has a simile within it. That's an important thing. Yeah? Are the flowers just like the shit that they're underneath and staring at? OK, yeah, they could be. That's nice. Um, that's, a, that's, that's a good possibility. So, but notice just the structure. Um, before you interpret, notice the structure and then interpret. But it's that they obey the shepherd of the people. That's one simile, or that's actually a metaphor, the shepherd of the people, as though they're sheep. Um, they obey their shepherd. That's a metaphor. The rest rose to their feet, the sceptered kings, obeying the shepherd of the people, and the army thronged behind them, like the swarms of clustering bees that issue forever in fresh bursts from the hollow in the stone, and hang like bunched grapes. So they are like bees that are like grapes, is what this simile says. It's a simile within a simile, as they hover beneath the flowers in springtime, fluttering in swarms together this way and that. So the many nations of men from the ships and the shelters. So bees come out, the army is described as being like bees gathering um, sweetness, and then the bees are described as being like grapes. And then we go from the grapes back to the bees, and then from the bees to the men, the soldiers. Just notice that fact, the simile within the simile. Um, 
if you go to um, the Paradise Lost Book 1 again, at the bottom of that page, um, trumpets are about... Um, well, why don't we just start where we stop? Thus they relate airing about Mulciber, for he, with this rebellious route, fell long, fell long before. I don't know what it says, along. It's actually long. Fell long before. Nor aught availed him now to have built in heaven high towers, nor did he scape by all his engines, but was headlong sent with his industrious crew to build in hell. Meanwhile, the winged heralds, by command of sovereign power, that is, Satan sends the heralds around the fallen angels, the winged heralds, by command of sovereign power, with awful ceremony and trumpets sound, Throughout the host proclaim a solemn council forthwith to be held at pandemonium, the high capital of Satan and his peers. Their summons called from every band and squared regiment by place or choice the worthiest. So from every regiment, the most important figure comes. Um, the centurions, um, the le leader of each centurion comes. They anon with hundreds and with thousands trooping came attended, all access was thronged, the gates and porches wide, but chief, the spacious hall, though like a covered field, where champions hold, bold won't ride in armor, and if the soldan's chair defied the best of pain and chivalry to mortal combat or career with lance, I won't explain that now, but it's a reference to yet another epic. Um, they all come, but chief, the spacious hall, throng, thick swarmed both on the ground and in the air. So the Hall of Pandemonium is kind of like the Astrodome. It's a gigantic field. It's covered, but it's as big as a football field, is essentially what Milton is saying. Or it's as big as a jousting field. It's like um, the TD Bank North Garden. It's gigantic. Um, and nevertheless, big as it is, the spacious hall thick swarmed both on the ground and in the air, brushed with the hiss of rustling wings, as bees in springtime, when the sun with Taurus rides, pour forth their populous youth about the hive in clusters. They, among fresh dews and flowers, fly to and fro, or on the smoothed plank, the suburb of their straw-built citadel, new rubbed with balm, expatiate and confer their state affairs. So thick the airy crowds swarmed and were straightened till the signal given, behold a wonder. And what you'll, and then he'll describe the wonder, which is how small they become so that they really are like bees. But notice now that Milton is also picking up from Homer this idea of this gigantic army that look like bees. The way to describe how gigantic the army is is by suddenly reducing them to a tiny figure that we can hold in mind. They're all like bees, and it's like a numberless swarm of bees. That's what they looked like. OK, go back to page 88. And um, now the Achaean army is marching, and they look like fires on a mountain. And then the simile, or set of similes, continues. These, 
as the multitudinous nations of birds winged, of geese and of cranes and of swans long-throated in the Asian meadow beside the Caistrian waters, this way and that make their flights in the pride of their wings, then settle in clashing swarms, and the whole meadow echoes with them. So of these the multitudinous tribes from the ships and shelters poured to the plain of Scamandros, and the earth beneath their feet and under the feet of their horses thundered horribly. They took position in the blossoming meadow of Scamandros, thousands of them as leaves and flowers appear in their season. Like the multitudinous nations of swarming insects who drive hither and thither about the stalls of the sheepfold in the season of spring when the milk splashes in the milk pails, in such numbers the flowing-haired Achaeans stood up through the plain against the Trojans, hearts burning to break them. So notice that we have three completely inconsistent similes here. Um, we have, um, first, the Achaeans are like a forest fire in the mountains. Then they're like um, a flock of birds or flocks and flocks of birds um, in a field. And then they're like swarming insects around a milk pail. And notice that there's a kind of devolution of intensity in these three similes. The idea that they're like a fire about to burn everything. That's the most sublime and beautiful of the three. And then they become like birds who are swarming everywhere. And then insects that are bothering um, the, um, the, milk, the, the milking in the sheepfold in the spring. And it's what Homer is doing and what he does persistently with his similes is he gives you a possible other life from the life of war. And the similes are always focusing your mind on a place that could be different from the place where we are. Um, let's take a look at another one. Um, if you go to page 120, which is... Um, Book four, line, the paragraph starts at line 273. Um, so what we have here is Atreides, who's Atreides? Agamemnon of the house of Atreus, the son of Atreus, hence Atreides. Um, so Atreides, cheerful at heart, went onward. On his way through the thronging men, he came to the Aeontes, that is the two Ajaxes. These were armed, and about them went a cloud of foot soldiers. And then that metaphor turns into a simile. As from his watching place, a goat herd watches a cloud move on its way over the sea before the drive of the west wind. Far away though he be, he watches it, blacker than pitches, 
moving across the sea and piling the storm before it. And as he sees it, he shivers and drives his flocks to a cavern. So, so that's the simile part, what's often called the vehicle. Do people know the language of tenor and vehicle? Okay, so this is a um, technical term, but it's, an obvious, it's a metaphor about how metaphors work. Similes and metaphors are different, but they're similar enough that we can say they're metaphorically the same. Laugh. That was really meta. Yeah, yeah, hence metaphor. It's a meta-metaphor. <laughs> I never met a meta-metaphor I didn't like. Um, <laughs> uh, the tenor is what you're really supposed to get out of it. That is, the tenor is, basically, this is what I meant by this. The tenor of my remarks was, to quote a great line from the uh, contemporary Austrian writer, Thomas Bernhardt, I gave a little speech whose tenor was that man was a poor creature and death was certain. Um, so basically, it's a summing up, a summary, the tenor. The vehicle is the actual image that conveys, which is what vehicles do, that conveys the basic meaning, which is the tenor. So the, via, so the metaphor of how metaphors work is that, they, that the literal words are a vehicle, but they convey a meaning which the literal words are not actually saying. Um, when you talk about similes, um, the vehicle is what you're comparing something to. We could call, say, that's like the vehicle. And the tenor is the thing that we're understanding through that comparison. So the vehicle is what, the, what it's being compared to, and the tenor is what's being understood. So um, the vehicle here is the goat herd watching a cloud move on its way over the sea before the drive of the west wind. And far away though he be, he watches it blacker than pitches, moving across the sea and piling the storm before it. And as he sees it, he shivers and drives his flocks to a cavern. So, and now we get to the tenor, so about the two Aontes moved the battalions, close compacted of strong and God-supported young fighters, black and jagged with spear and shield to the terror of battle. So the vehicle is the cloud, and the tenor is um, the cloud of men who are around the two Aontes. Um, so um, look, hang on to that. Um, go forward a little bit more to page um, 124. Um, I want to look, basically, we have five minutes. I want to look at three more similes. Um, this is uh, line 422. As when along the thundering beach the surf of the sea strikes beat upon beat as the west wind drives it onward, far out cresting first on the open water, it drives thereafter to smash roaring along the dry land and against the rock jut Bending breaks itself into crest, spewing back the salt wash. So thronged, so that was the vehicle, now we get to the tenor. So thronged, beat upon beat, the Danaeans close battalion steadily into battle, with each of the lords commanding his own men. And these went silently, 
you would not think all these people with voices kept in their chests were marching silently in fear of their commanders, and upon all glittered as they marched the shining armor they carried. And then on the next page, this is at line 452, as when rivers in winter spate, running down from the mountains, throw together at the meeting of streams the weight of their water out of the great springs behind in the hollow stream bed and far away in the mountains, the shepherd hears their thunder. Such from the coming together of men was the shock and the shouting. So first you get the thundering beach, the surf of the sea beating upon the land, and then you get the two rivers clashing in their meeting. And the second simile on these two pages is when the men start shouting. Um, the first simile is their silent marching. Um, what's Homer's similes are not in any way all of the same kind. And the three similes we've just looked at um, are interesting because they all three of them are about a point of view that is not the point of view of the people who the simile is about. What do I mean by this? Um, I'll try to say this briefly, but I may have to say it, um, uh, expand on it. Um, are you going to tell me what I mean? Good. Uh, um, uh, sure. <laughs> um, Go for I, it. I'm pretty sure the people don't see themselves as powerful warriors, not as little tiny insects swarming around. Yeah, so they don't see themselves as swarming insects swarming around, tiny insects swarming around. Um, so one thing that similes do is they give you a visual, basically they give you a visual um, that you wouldn't get um, if you were part of them. Um, Homer is very cinematic in his imagination. Um, one way that you can see that is, is that you, um, at the beginning of book two, um, we're seeing all the men arguing, and then suddenly we're seeing them from the point of view of the gods. Homer is always shifting point of view, so, um, and it's amazing how he does it, how we get from Greeks to Trojans to gods to Greeks to gods to Trojans. He's always shifting that point of view, and part of that shift is something like a pullback. So the crowd suddenly, you know, like those old Coke commercials, um, you see a bunch of people singing, and then the camera pulls back, and you see that they're singing in their thousands about how the world should all love each other. Um, your hand was up. Oh, I was just going to say, like, it seems like these similes are the God's point of view, because it is like watching a movie. Like, I always, like, as I was reading, I thought of the people as, like, little toys. Right. Yeah, so, so in a sense, what you could say is the similes are always, in one way or another, um, a point of view from outside the poem, um, or at least from outside what they're describing. To see humans as being the old joke, this, you don't have to laugh at this joke, um, but the really stupid uh, bazooka bubblegum joke that, um, that I came upon when I was eight and didn't like even then was two people are looking out a window and one, uh, of an airplane, and one says, God, we're up so high, those people look like ants. And the other one says, those are ants. We haven't taken off yet. So no need to laugh, really. Um, um, that idea that you would be in a position that people would look like ants to you um, just basically tells you that you're not in it. But there are different ways, and this is what I want to point out now, there are different ways of not being in it. So one of the striking things about the simile that starts at line 422 is all the Danaeans are marching into battle 
And then Homer says, and these went silently at 429, you would not think all these people with voices kept in their chests were marching. So suddenly, we, the hearers of this poem, are told, not that we're seeing it from a kind of um, universal point of view, but if we were there, we wouldn't believe it. So that's not like looking at bees and saying there's so many of them, they were like a swarm of bees. Suddenly, it's our point of view is brought into this, and we are different from these people. They're amazing. We're not like them. But if you go back to 420, here's a puzzle about this simile, and it's all puzzles are gifts in literature. And the puzzle is, as from his watching place a goat herd watches a cloud move, Skip the rest of the simile. What corresponds to that in reality? As from his watching place, a goat herd watches a cloud move. Then the simile ends at the, the tenor starts at 280. So, so what? Who's like the goat herd watching the cloud? Yeah, there's no mention in the tenor of anything like the goat herd. If this were simply like the first simile we looked at, the bees, the simile of the bees, what we would get is as a cloud moves on its way over the sea before the drive of the west wind, blacker than pitches, moving across the sea and smiling and, and piling the storm before it, so about the two Aeontes move the battalions. But what doesn't get picked up from the simile is the goat herd watching. Far away though he be, he watches it. And as he sees it, he shivers and drives his flock to a cavern. That's not picked up from the simile. And it's important that it is. And one last example, again, is, and the shepherd hears the thunder that we get at line 455. What shepherd? What goat herd? What happens here is the similes tell you about the extraordinary danger and fearfulness from a different point of view. And what I'll say very briefly, from the point of view of peace, what the similes are telling you is that these armies are destructive of that. The great question, the great argument about Homer, I don't give paper topics, but yo. Um, <laughs> The great argument about Homer is, does he, is the Iliad a militaristic or an anti-war poem? And that's something to think about as you read through it. Um, the Iliad for or against the glory of war, for or against violence. Okay, so um, six more books for Friday. Um, I hope you're enjoying it.